This is a challenging section, as I've said multiple times, and yet I'm convinced, and that's why we're staying with it, I'm convinced that the Lord began his public ministry with the opportunity that came by drawing apart from the normal course of life and inviting his disciples to come up the mountain to learn from him. Remember now that he's been in ministry for some years, some months for sure, and crowds have begun to be wherever he is. As soon as people know Jesus is there, crowds uh, show up. And they show up for all kinds of reasons, but Jesus invited those who wanted to be his disciples, those who desired to be his disciples, to come up the mountain. And that takes effort. And that's a picture, in my judgment, it's a picture of the reality that it takes effort out of the ordinary to even begin to contemplate, let alone to become, a disciple of Jesus. And here again today, for the fifth time now, we hear Matthew recording for us that he says, now you have heard this, but if you want to be my disciple, that's my inner, I'm sticking that in there. If you want to be my disciple and move toward entering the kingdom of heaven, this is what I say to you. And each time so far, this is the fifth time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus uses that pattern of speech. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he takes up an authority in the life of the people of God in Israel at that time. He takes up an authority that at first sight repeatedly seems to go against the word of God. But he never, ever goes against the word of God. He came, as he says to us, he came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And yet, if you don't know this, listen carefully. He never overturns the law or says, now my followers can ignore the law. He says just the opposite. He says, my followers are to be more faithful to the word of God than even the most religious people that you think are the ones that you should listen to. No, you should listen to God, not man. And each time, and here's the fifth one today, he slices into the common understanding of what's being said. And I suspect that that would be true for most of us today when we just say out loud, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Most, most of us would go, well, isn't that in the Bible? Well, yes, it is in the Bible. It is absolutely in the Bible. So how are we to understand it? How are we to understand it? It, it has a special resonance for me because when I was 20 years old, I was told that I was going blind. And, um, and of all the things that I would most sadly lose, it would be my sight. So I've, I've got a special resonance to the idea of if somebody, if somebody damaged my eye, be ready to go, right? And, and what it seems clear that, that's going on here is that it had become a 
saying among many Jewish people, taught by their leaders apparently, that the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was something for everyday life in every circumstances. You snatch my grocery cart away from me just when I'm reaching for one of the little ones. Well, I'm going to stick my foot in front of you making sure. And others, that that had become a, an interior reality, and it was being justified because it was the word of God. And Jesus says, you are not understanding it at all. Now, he doesn't explicitly tell us what I'm going to tell you, but that is that the, the law of Moses three times lays out a law, this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But in all three cases, it's laying it out in terms of how the judicial life of the nation was to work. So if you're a judge, if you're a judge, Gary Laughlin, if you're the judge, and someone's brought in for stealing a loaf of bread, you're not to give him a sentence as though he was a murderer. An eye for an eye, a loaf of bread is a different offense than taking a life. So the law that was given to Israel that is captured in the very memorable phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is, is meant to bring proportionality into the court of law. When disputes arrive and, and, and crimes have been committed, there's to be proportionality. That's what it teaches. But it had become a way of justifying retaliation against any wrong that came my way. You hurt me, I hurt you. You steal from me, I steal from you. You step on my toe, sorry, this path. <laughs> I accidentally stepped on this path. She steps on yours. No, no, Jesus said, that is completely contrary to God's will for how you are to relate to one another. That's not how you are to relate to one another. Human beings need laws. If you don't think that's true, you have shut yourself off from all the world and live alone. Because if you just even live with one other person, you know that life together requires some laws. <laughs> you do or you don't put your socks in that drawer. <laughs> There are all kinds of ways. And what is that? Well, it's, it's necessary for all human beings, even the most wicked, even the most evil, create frameworks without which human beings can't live together. Now, why is that? It's because in the human heart is a desire to look out for me against all others. In the human heart is a selfish, self-centered, sinful reality. And it's in everybody. It's in those who love God and those who don't love God. And that's why God makes it very, very clear in the revelation that he's given us that mankind needs law. Mankind needs law. Without law, men are without restraint. So what we're dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount today is not, is it all right for Israel to retaliate against Hezbollah? 
That's a whole other subject. But the law is still very real for them. You send rockets at us, we're sending rockets at you. But Jesus is not talking about nation, nation and nation and self-defense. He's talking about the attitude of the human heart. The attitude of the human heart. And that's what he slices into here. Now, let's try to open the Word of God just a little bit. I'm not going to be able, in my, in my own conscience, to rush through these four verses. I, I cannot do these four verses in one Sunday. But let's, let's step back and talk about opening the Word of God. How are you doing? How are you doing? Ask yourself, how are you doing at opening the Word of God in your daily life? Opening the Word of God in order to hear it, to understand it, to pray over it, and to ask God to help you by the Holy Spirit to live what is truly binding on the heart of a follower of God. The scriptures contain many things that are not binding on us. The scriptures contain history and examples of all kinds of sin. All, there's almost no wretchedness known to human life that's not contained between the covers of a Bible. But we are to open the Word of God to hear God's voice and to learn to understand in the light of the life that has been given to us in Christ Jesus and the Spirit that has come to be in every true believer. We are to learn to understand what God's desire for us is and to recognize that the law is a restraint on the worst realities of human life because human beings have fallen away from God's purposes. And the law is there to teach us. There is nothing given that is not in order that we would be instructed, but not instructed in the wrong way, but in the right way. And there are portions of the scripture called historically in Christian circles, the moral law, as we've discussed before, the moral law is binding. It is binding on Putin, whether he knows it or not. It is binding on John Schumer, who does know it. I will be judged in the light of the law of God. And so will you. Now, a Christian understands a number of things as presuppositions. I, I, I think I've mentioned presuppositions more than once in the season that we've been together, but they matter so much. They matter so much. I know a lot of people who presuppose constantly that they can break the law. That for them it's okay. It may not be okay for you, but it's okay for them. How do I know that? Well, I watch it happen. I watch it happen. You know what I'm about to say. Someone's coming down 17. <laughs> 48, 49 miles an hour, not too much over the speed limit, 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 right? And it goes yellow. And what do they do? They put their brake on. God bless them. 
Someone else has come down 17 and 55, 60, yellow light, go 70. Law doesn't apply to that person. We see it all the time. All the time. And we see it in our private life, and we see it in our public life. A Christian has presuppositions, and here are some of them, some of the most basic. There is a God. God has divinely revealed his will to man. God has sent his only begotten son to show man the way he should live. Now, when you accept those presuppositions, which by faith we do, and some of us, when we're little, we accept that just because people we love and who have some authority in our lives tell us it's true. And like many other things that we are told when we are young, if we are told these things are true, we are inclined generally, if we have been raised in any kind of a loving environment, to trust that they're true. So we often have an intellectual idea that they're true. But at some point in the life of every woman and every man, I have to move from an intellectual conviction that it's true to a personal, confident, by faith, through grace, knowledge that it's true. It's true. And because it's true, and because I believe it, I must learn to live in that light. I cannot just coast any longer. Because God has revealed so clearly to me in the Word of God, if I have not yet come to begin to understand it in myself, that I am a sinner and I will not choose the way of God left to my own devices. I may pretend to take the way of God, but I will not take the way of God unless the Spirit of God takes residence in me and begins to change me day after day, week after week, month after month, and sometimes I grow in despair that the change seems so slow. But that inner desire for that change is a mark of the true believer. And the true believer cannot disdain the word of God and cannot claim on that great day, well, I didn't know. I think it's still true. I was taught it in the only law course I ever had to take at West Point. That ignorance of the law is no excuse. It's my duty to know the law. Some years ago, Cynthia and I went to France. We've been to France more than once, but we were actually in France for a 30-day mission trip. And during the 30-day mission trip, I rented a car. And I loved being in France because they drive on the correct side of the road. Unlike the, unlike the English. And, uh, and so I was very, very comfortable on their roads. But do you know what can happen to you in France? You can get a ticket like that for going one mile an hour over the speed limit. You can go 40. You can go 50. You can go 60 if it says 60. But you can't go 61. 
You get a ticket. And they've got all these bad, bangle things that take pictures of you. They get you whether you know they got you or not. You know what that's done? In France, people drive the speed limit or a little less. Almost everybody. It's really kind of sweet. Now that's what the law does. The external law, the punishment for not doing that in the culture of France is sufficient to make the vast majority of the people obey it because they don't want to be punished. But God wants us obeying the law because we love him. And because he loves us. And because he is revealed to us. This way will lead to death. This way leads to destruction. This way leads to the breakdown of families. This way leads to the breakdown of communities. This way leads to the breakdown of nations. Don't go that way. Come this way. Come my way. Let me show you what's wrong, and then let me begin to put it right. Let me begin to put it right. And that's what Jesus is speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over and over. We don't have high-rise buildings here in our, in, I don't think, and I think in Georgetown County, the tallest building in the county has recently been built down right as you're coming into town. I'm looking for affirmation from Chip here, but there's a three or three and a half story insurance building down there now that wasn't there a year or two ago. I think it's about as high as anything in our county, right? So we're not, most of us, worrying about how the foundation secure and the condo will not collapse. But I tell you, I would be worrying about it if I lived on the 8th or the ninth or the 10th floor of a condominium building right now, especially if it was 30 or 40 years old or 50, right? And right up by the ocean. Why? Because if the foundations are not solid, the whole building can collapse. And the thing about foundations is you don't think about them. You don't, you don't look at them. You don't see them. In the construction world of really tall buildings, the general rule of thumb is half the project is just getting to ground level. If the project's going to take three years to build, it'll take a year and a half to get it to ground level. It's that important. Then it doesn't seem important anymore because all we know is the building. And that's what's happening to us. We have neglected the foundations. We as a people have neglected the foundations. We have neglected the foundations in the nation. But I am convinced the reason the nation is in the state it is is because the church has neglected the foundations. I read an amazing story the other day, and I, I cannot remember where I read it, but it's remained very vivid in my mind. And it may have, it may be famous enough that someone out there will have heard it and, and helped me know the reference, but it might have been Churchill, but you know, we, we, we often give Churchill a lot more credit than he deserves. But anyway, someone from overseas was in New York City uh, for, for some business purpose, and they were up late enough at night, weren't sleeping, or maybe they just wanted to be, I don't know. But they looked out the window and saw an intersection in downtown Manhattan, and there were no cars in any direction. There were no people, no cars. But one car was coming down the street, 
and the traffic light turned red. And at 3 a.m., the car stopped and waited for the light to change. And the man, let's just say it was Churchill. Churchill saw it. And he later told the story and he said, that is America. That's not America today. You heard it said, <clears throat> an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, the desire for an eye for an eye, the desire to fight back, the desire to hit back, the desire to hurt you if you hurt me, runs deep in the human heart. And it's in my heart too. Because I'm a fallen man. I'm a child of Adam. My self struggles to be in charge of everything. But God wants to be in charge. God is in charge. And the day's coming when if I have any doubt about that, there'll be no more doubt. There'll be no more doubt. This teaching is all about the selfish self that is constantly guarding its own territory. It's about an attitude of heart and mind. It's not about literal eyes and literal teeth. Not in this context. And the tragic reality is this attitude, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, can insidiously enter into the lives of God's people. Now, I've prayed and thought a long time about why should that be so. Why is one of the most insidious examples of this to be found among religious people who, who gradually get known not for being loving, not for being kind, not for being merciful, not for forgiving, but gradually get known for being a very different kind of person than most of the unbelieving world want to be. Unbelievers, on the whole, want to be good people. Because God has made all people. And none of us will know what God desires for us until we rest in Him. And even before belief comes, people have a grasp of that in some, in some unexpressible way that manifests itself in the kindly Samaritan and the priest and the Levi who pass by. I believe that what Jesus is trying to show in the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over can be captured in an old phrase. And the phrase is the letter and the spirit. It is possible to take the letter of the law and become an enemy of God. It is possible to self-justify ourselves as religious people 
and become enemies of the purposes for which God called us. And it will never disappear among us, except as one after another, we recognize it in ourselves, and we ask God to forgive us. And we turn and ask God to lead us and show us the way out of this prison of self by the sending of his spirit. A man must turn his life over to God or a man will not be saved. And he doesn't turn himself over to God so that then he can take charge again. He turns himself over to God that God would teach him to live by the spirit of the law, which is designed for his good and the good of others, and to teach him and to guide him and to restrain him until the spirit of God so transforms him that he loves what God commands. We prayed it in today's college. And we said, make us, because we won't do it without it. Make us love what you command, Lord. There's a life-pondering phrase. None of us are too old to ponder that phrase. None of us have walked with the Lord too long to linger over that phrase that love and joy and peace might increase in me and in the other. Make me love what you command. And in my relationship with other people, it is not to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you alone can save. And we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son, that we might be saved, that we might not perish, that we might not live on our own and for our own selfish selves, but might learn to let you live in us, that we would be all that we are meant to be, and that through us you might bless others. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen.